We're continuing in our study through the book of Jonah, so if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to Jonah chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, we have some Bibles that are provided for you, and uh, they look like this, black Bible, gold lettering, Uh, and Jonah chapter 2 should be on page like 7 something or other. 774, there we go. <clears throat> Excuse me. So if you use one of those Bibles, you can turn to 774. Uh, the book of Jonah starts out this way. God tells Jonah to go and deliver a message to the people of Nineveh that he's going to destroy the city. Jonah disobeys God. He does not go to Nineveh. He goes as far as he can the opposite direction, so he disobeys. He sins. Sin is disobedience to God. Jonah boards a ship. And while on board that ship, God sends a storm upon the waters. And uh, the Reader's Digest is that because of the storm, Jonah gets thrown overboard. And uh, Michael covered chapter 2 last week. Uh, He brought out a lot of truth for us and helped us see how in so very many ways we in our lives are exactly like Jonah. But today I want to go back to Jonah chapter 2. Uh, just for a moment, and then we'll launch into Jonah chapter 3, and we'll, we'll land in Jonah chapter 4 as well. Jonah 2, verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. Jonah is thrown overboard. He's sinking to the bottom of the sea. He thinks that this is it for him. He thinks that God has come after him. He knows that the storm is the consequence of his sin. It's God's uh, discipline for his sinful disobedience. And he thinks that I'm going to die. I've been thrown overboard, and I'm going to drown, and I'm going to die. And Jonah's prayer at that point is the prayer of anyone who cries out in desperation in a near-death experience, God, help me. God save me. Jonah's prayer at that point is not a prayer acknowledging his sin, acknowledging his disobedience, asking for God's grace, God's help to change. It's just a cry of desperation. Jonah cried out in his distress, God save me. And as we saw in the last part of chapter 1, Jonah is swallowed by a huge fish. God appointed a fish. Some say it's a whale. It doesn't really matter. It was, a, it was a water creature. God appointed it to swallow Jonah to preserve his life. And so Jonah begins. He prays there in the belly of the fish. He begins a prayer of thanksgiving. Still not a prayer of repentance. Still not necessarily at this point acknowledging, God, I've sinned against you and I need your forgiveness. At this point, it's... I'm just happy I'm alive. I'm in the belly of a stinky fish, but I receive this as your deliverance because I'd rather be smelling fish than not smelling being dead. And so he has a cry of distress, and now he has a prayer of thanksgiving. And in his prayer of thanksgiving, there's an indication of Jonah's hope for deliverance, for continued deliverance. Jonah sees that God saved his life, 
And Jonah takes the fact that he's been swallowed by a fish and is not sucking sand at the bottom of the ocean as an indication that God will continue to deliver him. I deserve to die, Jonah is basically acknowledging. And yet I'm not dead. And if you have saved me thus far, God, I thank you because I believe that you will continue to deliver me. And then in verse 8, we, we jump down there and it says, Jonah 2, 8, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. So those who trust in anything else other than God, they have no hope. There's no hope for them. Verse 9, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So here in verse 9, we basically see Jonah's prayer of repentance. Jonah, Jonah knows that the storm is the consequence of his sin. God is coming after him in loving correction because of his disobedience. He thinks that he's going to die. He knows that he deserves to, but he cries out, God, help me. He's swallowed by the fish, and so he prays, God, thank you for saving me. And now verse 9 I will sacrifice to you. I will give you what I've vowed. I will be obedient. I will be faithful. Jonah cries out to God. He prays of thanksgiving, and then he repents. Repentance is remorse, but it's more than that. It's more than just feeling bad about something. Repentance is a change of mind. It's turning. It's turning from evil to good. It's turning from sin to God. And Jonah acknowledges, I was running from you, but now I will sacrifice. I will pay what I have vowed. I will run to you. God, I repent. I turn from disobedience to faithful obedience. And Jonah's reward, he gets puked out. The fish vomits out Jonah onto dry land, and so that further deliverance that he had hoped for has now been uh, realized. Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. Let's pick up there. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey to breadth. Let me stop here for a minute. There's a lot of reasons why people try to poke holes in the book of Jonah and say that it's a fable, say that it didn't really happen. The idea that a man was swallowed by a huge fish and was there <clears throat> excuse me, for three days and then was puked up and still lived. That just seems preposterous to a lot of people who deny miracles and deny supernatural activity. And they say that in and of itself is a reason why Jonah is a farce. It's a fable. It didn't really happen. It's a good story with a good moral, but it wasn't an actual historical event. Uh, another thing that some people use is they say, right here, three days journey across Nineveh. That's not, that's not true. Archaeological finds have proved that Nineveh was not that big of a city. Circumference, even if you went all the way around it, it wouldn't have taken three days. That can be easily explained. Nineveh was a metropolis. And so the population of St. Louis City is only like 350,000 people. But I can say that a million people live in St. Louis. If I take St. Louis to be 
the St. Louis area. If I start as far out as O'Fallon and I go maybe as far south as Arnold, by some, that's all considered St. Louis. And so Jonah went to Nineveh, and it was a three-day breadth to go from one part to the other, basically the metropolis, not just the walled city itself, but all the towns and villages that were outlying uh, the, the city walls. And so Jonah goes through into the city. And then verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. He got a day into the journey and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. God will completely destroy the city of Nineveh. This, this phrase, Nineveh will be overthrown, that's the same language we see in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, where God says, I will overthrow Sodom. And we know that fire rained down from heaven and completely obliterated everything in the city of Sodom. And so this is the same concept. Forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown, completely destroyed by the Lord. Verse 5, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. It says they fasted. Their response to this message, they believed it was true, and they fasted. That means they went without food. Fasting, its simplest definition is is going without food. They went without food to focus on the seriousness of their sin and their need for God's mercy. There's a couple reasons the Bible gives us for why we might fast. And one of those reasons is repenting, a fast of repentance. We focus on the seriousness of our sin, the penalty that we rightly deserve, and our need for God's mercy. And we say, in essence, by going without food, during a fast of repentance, we're acknowledging, God, I need your mercy more than I need food. I can have food and live and yet die. Without your mercy, though, there is no life. Even if I live physically, I die without your mercy. And so we're fasting food, we're declaring our need for God's mercy when we are fasting during repentance. An example, God himself says in Joel chapter 2, verse 12, Yet now, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Do business in your heart, not on the outside, not externally, do business in your heart. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. God is glad to distribute mercy. God calls people to repent, to turn from sin, to trust in Him, because He is glad to save. And so that's what's going on here. It's an outward expression of the heart. The going without food, the putting on the the sackcloth, the rags, that in and of itself does not do anything. But that is an outward expression of what's going on in their heart. They're making a statement by their actions about what they feel and believe and what is going on in their heart. This is not self-punishment. A fast of repentance is not, I'm going to go without food and beat up on myself and feel like, I feel bad enough, and if I'm, if I'm harsh on myself, then that way 
I'll earn forgiveness. That's not what it's about. You don't earn anything from God except death. Sin earns death. The only thing that you earn is death by your sin. But when we fast, we acknowledge, I need you more than food. I need your mercy. Nothing else can save me. This isn't, I feel bad, and if I beat up on myself, it'll, it'll make it all better. This is, I need you. That's the, that's the statement that we're making. All in bold, capital letters, exclamation marks. I need your mercy. And that's what they're doing. And verse 6 says, The word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne. This is like a providential governor over Nineveh and that general area. He arose from his throne. He removed his robe. He covered himself with sackcloth and he sat in ashes. So physically, his posture, he was trying to make a statement. I, I want to be as low as I can because you're, you're high, God. You're good. You're big. You're mighty. And I want to lower myself as low as I can to say, I'm not great. You're great, I'm not, and I need your mercy. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call mightily to God. Excuse me, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Now this, when you really think about it, this story, what's going on here, is bizarre. And there's a couple reasons why. One thing, as we've talked about in the past couple weeks, and we need to take into account again, is the relationship between Jonah's country and the country where Nineveh is found, Israel and Assyria. These, these are our enemy states. Okay? These, these two countries do not get along. These two countries, they hate each other. And so you have a prophet, one of God's representatives from Israel, going to the country of their enemy saying... God is going to destroy you because of your sin. Here's another thing to take into account. Israel, unlike the nations around it, was monotheistic. They believed there was one true God. There was not one mighty God and then a lot of little gods. They believed that there was one God. One God only. Every other thing that was worshipped as God was either a demon or an idol. But there was only one God. God. The Assyrians and many of the other nations, they believed that there were many gods. There was a sun god, and maybe there was a god who blessed uh, fertility and blessed their crops, and there were many different gods. So you have two neighboring countries that are enemies. You have one man coming and saying, my God, the God of Israel, the only true God, and we believe all your gods are false, he's going to destroy you because of your sin. And they repent. So you've got racism, you've got uh, very big differences in religious ideologies, you've got a lot of reasons why they should just scoff 
and, and kill the man. A, a lot of reasons. This would be like me going to the, the hotbed, the heart of Islamic fundamentalism and saying, Jesus Christ is the only way to God. And unless you repent of your sins and trust in Jesus, you will be judged by Jesus and you will be separated under God's wrath in hell forever. I'm an American and I'm a Christian. I'm going to die. Okay? That's the only possible outcome apart from a mighty move of God. But a mighty move of God would bring Islamic fundamentalists to repentance and faith in Jesus. And a mighty move of God brought repentance in the hearts of the Ninevites. You see, history tells us that God had already been working in the lives of these people through some, some, some things that were going on in the world around them. In the, in the previous years, they had experienced two famines that had wiped out almost half of the population of, of that area. Uh, according to some scholars, they say that the timeline matches up, that there have been, or not two famines, two plagues. So disease, two different waves of disease had come through the area, killing off almost half of the population. In the ancient world especially, when that many people die, it starts to get people's attention. Then there was also political unrest. Assyria at one time was a very mighty nation. Matter of fact, in the years that are to come, after this story is the, the, probably the pinnacle of their uh, political power, but not yet at this point. They're, they're powerful, but not the most powerful that they will be. So there's also a threat of invasion from the north. So you've had two major waves of disease, and you've got the threat that your enemies from the north are going to come against you in battle. Then also, there was a solar eclipse over the land. Now, in ancient cultures especially, when the light of the sun goes dark, people freak out. Especially if you believe that there is a sun god and now there's no sunlight, then your theology is jacked up because your God died. People get freaked out. What's the message here? We're all going to die. All of these events, historians have said, happened just preceding Jonah's arrival. So a lot of people die, your enemies are going to attack, and the sun goes to darkness for, for a period of time. People are starting to say, what's going on? Then a prophet from one of your enemy states comes and says, our God's going to destroy you unless you repent. Actually, he doesn't even say unless you repent. He just says, God's going to destroy you. Now, here we need to give credit to the Ninevites, and we need to, to point to the fact that it is God who is working in their lives because there is no guarantee for mercy. Jonah's message was not, if you do not repent in 40 days, God will destroy your city like he destroyed the city of Sodom. That is not Jonah's message. It is, God is going to destroy your city in 40 days. Now, when people know that punishment is coming, there's a couple things that they could do, but a lot of times people just figure, hey, I'm going to get it anyway. I might as well live it up, you know? I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to experience 
pain and consequence anyway. And so since I know that if I were to clean it up at this point, there's no guarantee that I'm off the hook, I might as well just live it up. I might as well just do every, I might as well go all out. The Ninevites could have said 40 days till destruction. Well, let's start by killing Jonah and then let's do everything that we've ever restrained ourselves from doing. Why not? If we're going to be destroyed, that means we got 40 days to party like there's no tomorrow. Because in 40 days, there won't be any tomorrow. So we might as well. But instead, the people repent and then the, the providential governor, the king, declares an official decree that everyone is to cease their evil and violent ways and to repent. There's no guarantee that they will be forgiven. There's no guarantee that God will relent. There's no guarantee for mercy. But it shows what God is doing in their hearts that they hear of the consequences of their sin and they say, you know what, let's just stop. Let's just stop it. Let's just relent. Let's just turn to the Lord even if we don't get off the hook. Let's not go any further in this. Even if we experience pain, let's not go down this road anymore. Let's repent. Let's cease the evil of our ways. And in verse 10, we see, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? So back in Jonah chapter 1, when God first called Jonah, here's the, here's the discussion that took place. That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, to run from you. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah 2, Jonah cries out to God, Thank you for saving my life, even though I deserve to die. Jonah 4, he cries out to God, God, take my life, because the Ninevites deserve to die and didn't. So he's completely changed his position here. He wanted to live, now he wants to die. And we see the reason for Jonah's disobedience to begin with. Jonah did not run from God because he didn't want to be used in service to God. It wasn't that he didn't want to be God's prophet. There's another reference in the Bible to Jonah in the Old Testament about a message that he gave. So Jonah had already been used by God as his spokesperson. So it wasn't God called to Jonah like He did to other people in the Old Testament, like maybe Jeremiah. It's not like God called to him and Jonah said, Oh no, God, I, I'm not a good public speaker and I, 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 just, I really don't want to be to your prophet and therefore I'm going to run. No, Jonah ran because he hated the Ninevites. It's not that he didn't want to be used by God. It's that he hated the Ninevites. He was a racist. And he didn't want to go to Nineveh. He didn't want to be around Ninevites. And so, when Jonah repented, in chapter 2, verse 9, 
He may have repented for his disobedience to God, but he didn't repent of his racism. He didn't repent of his hatred towards the Ninevites. Jonah might have repented, but his repentance didn't go far enough. His repentance didn't go deep enough. And so one thing that I want us to see today is that sometimes we repent, we turn from our sin to God, we cease our evil actions, but our repentance doesn't go far enough. It doesn't go deep enough. It doesn't get to the root. Here's a, a story from a guy named C.J. Mahaney, um, and it's, it's, it's uh, written in a couple different books, but I found it in a, in a paper helping pastors to examine their life and their doctrine. C.J. says, I was meeting one day with a the small group of men who have responsibility to care for my soul. I had two areas of sin from the previous week to tell them about. Fairly certain that I needed help understanding the second pattern of sin, I considered the first something of a formality. I desired to confess it in order to be transparent, but the nature and root of the sin seemed clear to me. I wanted to spend minimal time on the first sin so we could have ample opportunity to examine the second. I informed the men about the first sin, a pattern of complaining in my life. As I had recently been preparing to speak at a conference, a number of small, unexpected trials had come my way. In my pride, I thought, these inconveniences shouldn't be happening to me. I'm busy preparing to serve God's people. I failed to remember that God has not promised to protect me from trial or suspend His work of sanctification, which is the process of making us more like Jesus. his work of sanctification, when I am preparing a message. The root of this sinful complaining, I told them, was pride. I explained that I had already confessed this sin to God and asked for His forgiveness. But before I could move on to the second sin, one of the men asked a question about my complaining. I answered, and then someone asked a second question. As additional questions were raised, I initially feigned a patient response, but I was perplexed. Hadn't I been clear? The root of complaining is obviously pride, which I confess to God and to them. Why all these questions? Outwardly, I acted as if I was trying to humble myself, taking notes, making eye contact, nodding and muttering, hmm, in all the right places. But the facade was becoming difficult to maintain. Do you think there might be anything else at the root of this sin, someone asked. That's when I launched into a mini-teaching on the nature of pride and how it lies at the very heart of so many of our desires. I was irritated with my friends' questions, and my responses were not humble. You see, I fully expected to receive appreciation and commendation for the humility of my confession and the insightful accuracy of my self-analysis, not a succession of inquiries. Where did this group of theological ignoramuses come from? What happened to my intelligent, discerning friends? But no, these were the same guys, wise and godly men. And they weren't convinced that I really understood what my complaining was all about. As we continued to talk, much more sin was revealed than I had originally perceived. In CJ's somewhat humorous story, he points out that though he had repented of the sin of complaining, just in case you didn't know it, complaining is a sin. The Bible says, do all things without complaining or arguing. CJ said, I confess the sin of complaining. I knew that the sin was pride. I thought I deserved better. And I 
confessed that root, but I didn't go deep enough. My repentance didn't go far enough. Sometimes we can repent of an action which is sinful, but never actually repent of the root. We may think that we're repenting of the root, but still we're not even going deep enough. James chapter 1, verse 14 tells us that each person is tempted to sin when he is lured away and enticed by his own desire. Before we ever do say or think anything sinful, there is a desire, a root of sin in our heart that is the cause of it. Jesus teaches in Matthew 15 that sin begins in the heart. And so I can steal something and the root of that theft could be greed, and I could repent of the sin of stealing, and I could change my actions and go the other extreme and become a workaholic, still driven by greed, my desire for things and stuff and money. My actions are perhaps more socially acceptable. I have repented from something that is... That is clearly sinful in action and gone to something that uh, work in and of itself is, is to be admired. It is a Christian ethic to be a worker, but being a workaholic, that is, is another form of extremism. And so I can deal with the action and I can change my action but never deal with the root. What drove me to steal, what drives me to be a workaholic, what's the root? I can change my actions, acknowledging the sinfulness of them, without ever fully acknowledging the root. Jonah repented of his actions. God, I'm disobeying you. That's a sin. I'm going to turn. I'm going to obey. But he never went far enough. Why did I disobey you, God? Because... I'm a racist, and I hate the Ninevites. And I'm going to Nineveh, obedient to you, hoping that you kill all of them. And when you don't, my sin, the root, I chopped off what was above ground, but I left the root, and now it's sprung up again. Jonah's repentance didn't go deep enough. It didn't go far enough. And then what we see is self-justification. Jonah says, God, this is why I disobeyed to begin with. Because I knew that you would spare those heathens. I knew that you would not give them the judgment that they deserved. I knew that I was going on a fool's errand because I said you were going to do this and you never did, thereby sparing their lives and making me look foolish. This is why I disobeyed. It was okay because I knew that you would fail to do what I wanted, what I expected you to do. When we justify our sin, we are justifying ourselves, and that is the opposite of repentance. We need to be justified by God because of what Jesus has done, not defending ourselves because of what we say, do, or think. Anytime we are sinning and we justify it, our heart is as far away from repentance because not only are we doing that thing, but now we are making it appear more acceptable. So our sin has really got a hold on us. 
Think of Genesis chapter 3 after the fall, after Adam and Eve disobeyed God and they ate the fruit that God said not to eat. And God confronted them there in the garden. They knew of their nakedness. They knew that they had disobeyed God. And what were their responses? Eve said, or Adam said first, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree. I'm justifying my actions. I'm shifting the blame. God looks to Eve. She says, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. I'm justifying my actions by shifting the blame. Think about our lives. Think about the way you respond when you do or say something and you get busted. Do you ever find yourself saying any of of these things? I was just being honest. I'm just saying what I feel. I was only kidding. That's just who I am. I made a mistake. I didn't mean it. I'm having a bad day. After you say or do something that comes back to bite you, instead of acknowledging that was sin, I'm sorry, that was sin, do you ever find yourself justifying? I'm having a really bad day. That's great. That's still sin. (laughs) I was just kidding. That's great. There's a little bit of truth to all sarcasm, and that was sin. Do you ever find yourself justifying your actions? Because when we sin, defensiveness is generally the natural reaction when we're called on it. Jonah is called on his sin. His repentance didn't go deep enough. And so what's he do? Self-justification. So sometimes repentance doesn't go deep enough. And sometimes we self-justify. But sometimes our repentance is just plain false. It's not really repentance at all. In some Bible study material from the folks at World Harvest Mission, they give this uh, case study of false repentance. It says, consider the following passage from the book of Hosea. The people of Israel say, Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but He will heal us. He has injured us, but He will bind up our wounds. After two days, He will revive us. On the third day, He will restore us, that we may live in His presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge Him. As surely as the sun rises, He will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. Looks like repentance. Looks like turning from sin to turning to God, right? At first glance, it seems as though God's people are truly repentant. They talk about returning to the Lord. They acknowledge God and look to Him for healing so they can live in His presence. It sounds as though they are honestly seeking God, but the Bible is clear that this is an example of false repentance. Here is God's answer to them in verse 4, the very next verse. God says, What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. God's saying, It You say it, but you don't mean it. You you claim to repent, but you don't live like it. You don't follow it through. God is not pleased with their attempt at repentance. He compares their love to the morning mist that soon disappears. A few verses later, God says, They do not cry out to me from their hearts. Remember Joel 2.14? Rend your hearts, not your garments. I care about what's going on inside of you, not just the external 
motions that you go through. They do not cry out to me from their hearts. Quite simply, their repentance is not really repentance. It's pain relief. They want their pain and suffering removed, and they want it done quickly. After two days, on the third day, they are not crying out from their hearts. They are not deeply broken over their sin. They want God to patch things up quickly so they can get on with life. A lot of times when we repent, it's because we're not enjoying the consequences of our sin. Someone sins and they feel the consequences of it and they feel bad that they got caught. They feel bad because they're experiencing pain. They're forced to confront their actions because of the negative effects of it and they want those effects to go away. But truth be told, if we could do what we did and not get caught and not experience pain, we would probably do it again. We don't truly grieve. It's like going out and getting drunk. And the next morning I have a hangover. Oh, I I never should have done that. Why? Because I have a hangover. I feel terrible. If I didn't feel terrible, maybe I wouldn't care. It's like going out and, and... Stealing, and you get caught, and now you, you, you're getting prosecuted, and, and you might have to go to jail. And now you have public shame because everyone knows that you stole something. Oh, I, I, I repent. Now, sometimes genuine repentance happens after those, those things. But other times, oh, I, I repent because I'm ashamed and I feel bad that I got caught. But I would not be repenting if there were no consequences. And in a way, that's God's gift to us. It helps us deal with those things. But a lot of times, instead of producing the true repentance that God intends for us to work out, it produces a false repentance. I'm sorry because I'm supposed to be. I got caught. I'm sorry because it hurts. And if I could figure out a way to do it without it hurting, I would. A lot of times it produces false repentance. People feel bad. They got caught. They resolved to do better. But it is only false. True repentance will grieve over sin itself and the root of that sin, not merely the consequences or the aftermath of one's actions. It's not repenting of drunkenness because you have a hangover or because you have a DWI or whatever, DUI. It's repenting of drunkenness because that's a sin against God. I worshiped alcohol instead of worshiping God. I wasted my life instead of being filled with the Spirit. I use alcohol because it's an easy example. And perhaps people will get uncomfortable if I probe further. But there's a lot of things that we repent of, but we're not really repenting of. It's false repentance. We just feel bad that we got caught. We don't hate the action itself. We don't hate the desire in us that caused us to do that. We just feel bad that we got caught. Or we feel bad about the shame that we know we we should have done differently. Maybe no one else knows. Maybe we just know. But we feel bad about the shame. If I could do this without shame, I would, but I can't. So I'm repenting because I feel bad. I don't actually hate that thing. I don't actually hate sin. I just hate the way I feel. 
That's a case of false repentance. True repentance. We see true repentance in 2 Corinthians. In chapter 7, the Apostle Paul had written a letter to the church at Corinth calling them out on some sin issues. And Paul says, and we're told that this letter that Paul wrote them, it grieved them. They were grieved to think that they had sinned in such a way. Verse 8, Paul says, For even if I made you excuse me, grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, not because you felt bad, but because you were grieved into repenting. You see, sometimes it's God's gift. There's a difference between guilt and conviction. And God gives us conviction, sometimes through pain, to bring us to true repentance. And Paul says, that's what's happened. For you felt a godly grief. You hated the action, not just my letter to you, so that you suffered no loss through it. It actually was was beneficial to you. For a godly grief, when we hate our sin, not just the consequence, produces a repentance, a turning that leads to salvation. It brings us closer to God without regret or as worldly grief, just guilt. I just feel bad that I got caught. I feel bad that I feel this way. Worldly grief produces death. It does not bring us closer to God. It causes us to look to ourselves and our own ability to do good and to do better next time. That's a false salvation. That's me trying to save myself. That will produce death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. This is true repentance. When we hate our sinful actions and we hate the root of our sin, not just the consequences, not just the feeling, the shame, but when we hate it and it drives us to God and it drives us to our need for His mercy. God, you must save me. I cannot save myself. God, you must change me. I cannot do better next time. I hate this in me, and I know that because of this, Jesus died. That's why I need Jesus. We always ask Ezekiel, Ezekiel, tell me about the cross. Sometimes he'll say, Jesus died on the cross. That's what we're working for. And then we'll say, Ezekiel, why did Jesus die? And what we want him to say, and he's growing in, is for our sins. God, I acknowledge this thing in my life. This very thing caused the death of your son. You had to kill your son so that I could be forgiven of this and set free from this. I cannot do better on my own. I need your mercy. Help me to hate this thing, this desire. Not just the consequences. All of the Christian life is repentance. Turning from sin to God is not merely how we become a Christian, but it is the Christian life itself, and it is the key to spiritual growth. All of our life is a matter of turning from self and sin to God, trusting in Him, not just to start with, not just to get the ball rolling, but all of it. Continually, I repent, Lord. I turn from that to you. You revealed this. I turn from that to you. I went back to it. I turn from that to you. 
And it's not the same thing necessarily all your life, but increasingly, as God works the process of sanctification, you becoming like Jesus, you see, that's another thing for which Jesus died. I turn from that to you. I repent. This side of heaven, we will never cease to have a need for repentance. But we can take comfort as we look at God's dealing with Jonah and Nineveh and look to the cross of Christ where God has dealt with the penalty of sin and invites us all to continually turn from our sins and trust in him. True repentance. This is God's invitation for us. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me as we pray?